Are you looking for a great way to be a better leader in today's world? Well, look no further. You're here at the Still Loading Podcast, where we explore leadership for the digital age. We collect all the best practices, skills and tips that you'll ever need so you can start being a better leader today. I'm your host, Ilona Brannan, and this is definitely worth listening to. Today, I'm talking to Ben Norton, and he has a huge amount of experience working in massive tech corporations such as Salesforce and SAP. And what he tells us is about his own journey from being in an agency working marketing to then evolving into the MarTech space. And it's a really fascinating journey. He lets us know all about his time at Salesforce and his own experience of being a leader, his top tips for that, and also his own personal journey about how you can kind of overcome the changes if you're going from one world into another, as he tells us about his experience from going from agency work into a big organization such as Salesforce. And it's really interesting to think about it from a digital age perspective when you think about moving from one culture to another in work now, especially in a remote context, it maybe is slightly more difficult to get the assimilation that you're looking for. So it's something that we were pondering in this episode about how we could make that better. How is it possible to make that better? He also shares his tips for being a great leader and his own management style. So it's a great episode. Enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of the Still Loading Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ben Norton, but I didn't even pronounce that right, Ben Norton, <laughs> who's with us, about his leadership development experiences. He's got about oh, too many years, right? It gets to that point where you're like, oh, I've got 20 plus years experience. Yeah. <laughs> but there is like that sort of level of experience. And Ben has had a great, amazing career in SaaS, in technology, in software. And I think he has got amazing insights into kind of the things that we need to think about in terms of leadership for the digital age, which is why he's a great guest for this podcast. Ben, could you please give the, the audience a bit more detail about you and what you're up to? That's quite an intro. Um, so, yeah, it, it is that time of career where you suddenly start counting and everything seems to be at least 20. And, that, and that's <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> um, I, I, and yes, also true is that I've spent the last, wow, the, the last seven, nearly eight years in a SaaS environment. So Salesforce, Marketing and then into Amasis, which was then consumed by SAP but prior to that I'd done some work in in sort of professional services consulting agency staff and I've always been the services guy within either services environment or the services guy within a software environment so uh, up until relatively recently I always felt a little bit like the alien so when I was in an agency environment they would think I was the software guy and then when I was in the software environment, they were like, you're the agency guy. So it was, I felt homeless. And it was only really when, um, when the MarTech stuff really started to kick off, which is probably at least 10 years ago now, that I suddenly felt like I'd arrived, you know, and, and I had some value to add because I was able to see what consumer-facing brands were doing from a kind of marketing and advertising perspective, but also able to see how software companies were trying to automate 
some of that stuff and how they were trying to sell into a similar persona as agencies were trying to sell into. I mean, not the same one. So, so my journey's been it's been in step with the with the evolution of marketing technology, which has now sort of become, I think, CX. You know, obviously what's true about software is that it's very good at reinventing itself and constantly slightly baffling the market. Mm. <laughs> and that's, you know, it, it, and it's important that you're always slightly dazed and confused because it helps us to sell. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a great, you know, observation and reflection on your part to realize that actually that ability to almost navigate the two worlds and translate for them has given you this insight into kind of the emerging trends that's happened with MarTech. Um, Was there ever a point at which you yourself were lost in translation? That's a good question. There's probably been like multiple times that where I've been lost in translation. I, I feel like probably the most out of place I felt was when I first got to Salesforce. And that was more to do with the size of the organization. So I'd worked into large software companies before, IBM and Adobe, but I'd never been on the payroll. So I definitely felt it at that point. I was head, I was sort of headhunted in and put into a role and I felt completely out of my depth. And I think for the first three months or so, was just scrambling to stay alive. And I was asked to run a team of people who each one could have done the job I was being asked to do. And, and, and initially, that I found that incredibly intimidating because it, you're in this kind of egoic struggle to prove your worth. You're the new guy in. Plus, I had, I think, one person in that team who had applied for the role that I hired in for. So it was the perfect storm. Plus, I'd gone into a large company then called Exact Target, which was just completing its integration as an acquisition. So it was a really, I mean, I look back now and as I'm, I'm explaining it to you, I think, God, no wonder I felt a little bit lost. But, but, the, um, but yeah, it, it was like stepping onto a speeding train. It took me at least six months to get my bearings to some degree, I felt like I never really got them. But the the business itself, the way it was built from the ground up by Mark Benioff is such a, is such an impressive large enterprise that you know it, I don't think anybody, that, as far as I'm aware, I don't think anyone does it better than that. It has all of the inherent issues of a monster business, but it's probably one of the cleanest versions of. But yeah, definitely there. I felt that for at least six months, the language I was talking, even the slides I was presenting, felt fluffy. You know, so I was mm. I was doing strategic slides and it wasn't until I found a couple of people who were ex-strategic planners, actually, who had got jobs as kind of, what were they called back then? Bizcons, business consultants. I found those guys and they were out pitching consumer brands and I suddenly thought, Oh, thank God. And I sort of clung, I clung to them <laughs> through the storm for a couple of months. And then I sort of, and then I found my feet. So, so yeah, that, I think that was definitely the biggest step change. But I've always gone into roles where I haven't felt comfortable on purpose because I think that I, I love the learning curve. I genuinely do. I like the incline. I don't, 
it's I, I like the chat the challenge is a bit generic but I, I like to feel a little bit oh god you know yeah well I guess you know going to like such a monster like that is quite an interesting transition but also I, I think it's really interesting because I think you pick up on culture right and I was talking to um, a contact of mine today and we were talking about culture in terms of the remote world and the remote cultures that exist now and my, myself, I was reading, I mean, it's a very old quote, I know this, but the quote was, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And of late, that's what I keep seeing with my clients working with scale-ups and predominantly remote-first organisations, is they're struggling a bit to almost create and manifest their cultures because you have to be so much more intentional with your design and with your instructions to your people. But also, how do you create a really... Uh, effective remote culture when you don't see each other and you can't build those bonds and it's an interesting sort of thing to to think about but when you had that role you must have been in the office how would you how do you think you would have approached it if you were just remote or maybe you were remote and that was part of the journey no it wasn't that I was not remote I was in the office I mean that was part of the part of the trauma was going into Salesforce you know like (laughs) 40 floors up in a, in a turbo lift, you know, in, in into the Ahana based, you know, every every office looking the same with the same wood from Hawaii, and you know that that was part of it. I I honestly don't know. I have no idea how I could have done it remotely. And I look at it now. I think for the third jobbers, which I still and I still occasionally get involved in interviewing people who are third jobbers, as I would describe them. So probably late 20s, mid, late 20s. They don't have the same sense of um, needing to prove themselves within a business. They tend to flip it and think the business needs to prove itself to them. And and I think that, uh, which is completely the opposite of me, certainly, where it was just, you know, work, work, work. But the I think when you already had that, so you've already got that age group coming into a business, spending a couple of years and then saying, I, you know, I don't feel that it's giving me what I want and not going for a progressive move in the sense of more money or more responsibility, just going somewhere else, which for me, you'd be like, what's that about? Like, how is that progressive? But then if you add in the remote aspect to that, you've got even less of a connection to to those people, which, and they're the, they are the, the engine room of the business, they're the ones that you're hoping at least 20% of them are going to stay for five, 10 years and drive your next leadership team, right? So how the hell are you going to keep them when their outlook is already, what are you going to do for me, right? Not what can I do for you as much. I don't mean that's as self-centered as it just did, but comparatively, it's more about what can you do for me? And then on top of that, the, the company has no way to communicate its value back to them. There's no office. There's no drinks after work. There's no activities after work. There's no social. There's no chit chat. There's no, you're not making friends, right? So it's that, so you're not connecting with a leader who you maybe have got no organizational overlap with, who you, who you see and have coffee with and you learn. And I, I just, I don't know how organizational dynamics can work in that sense. And, I, and I've definitely seen it as 
you know, as COVID hit, you know, the business I was in, Amartis was an incredibly cohesive business driving towards a very, really clear objective acquisition and was kept right on track the whole time. And then it just dissipated. It was gone almost overnight. So yeah, I, I, I think it's really tough for companies to do that. I think there's a lot of quite worthy, but ultimately slightly crap ways in which companies are trying to do it. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's hard. And I don't think anything really matches the, the physical. Like you, you, you've got to go and actually talk to people. You know, I come from a commercial background, so there would always be kickoffs, sales kickoffs, where you'd all get together somewhere. Even those have been virtual. And that would be the place where, you know, you'd go and, you, you, yes, you'd party, but you'd also meet all of your colleagues from across the world. They were amazing events, very draining, but also fantastic. Not anymore. And they're just coming back on stream. So, yeah, I, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's sad. And I don't know how we bring it back without it feeling like it's enforcement. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. I think it's interesting as a as the kind of challenge, I think, for the next few years for, for um, companies. I mean, Culture is always the secret source of any organization. That's what differentiates you ultimately from the competition. So I think yeah. those companies who can think about how to invest in remote culture or hybrid working culture in a meaningful way where, you, as you said, it doesn't feel forced and arbitrary and nobody on earth likes forced fun. Enforced fun is like, it's like an oxymoron beyond oxymorons. It's just like, I'm always that person in the back being like, kill me take me, take me somewhere right now. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right and you're wrong because it's very cultural. So, you, you know, you, you're, you, it, we Brits are probably the least, the least, <laughs> well, mm, the least compliant and the heart and the most cynical, hard bitten. You know, our American cousins are slightly more willing to take that leap. And certainly, I mean, you can't really generalize about APAC. It's so diverse. But but certainly the offices we had, Hong Kong, Sydney, they didn't feel quite so awkward about it. I think one of the one of the ways in which I've managed to keep the team that I ran up until fairly recently, one of the one of the sort of areas of interest slash passion that I have is giving people, and I did it when it was still, when we weren't remote working, but I think it's become even mm. more important since we have been, is giving people the scope to not just do what the company is asking them to do. So one of the, one of the key drivers of people having job satisfaction, so you know the data, having a, good, having a boss that isn't a nightmare and uh, feeling like you are in some way connected to the either the purpose, to your point, the culture, but feeling like you've got your hand on a lever, that you're not just taking care of one small section of a long anonymous workflow. And I think one of the ways in which I've tried to do that from a customer-facing or a prospect-facing perspective, selling consultancy or delivering insight or selling-selling, is allowing people to... Uh, bring some of their own, bring some of themselves 
to the to the value proposition or the work they're being asked to do. So not being so rigid in terms of saying, okay, you have to have this style guide, you've got to do these slides, you must talk about the 19 offices across the world first. You must giving people that leeway to say, hey, listen, get these three things, try not to get them wrong. But the rest, I'm more concerned with how you connect with someone than what you say. That's helped by giving people a sense of authenticity, if you want. But equally, you've got to balance that because to another individual, that leeway of sort of going, like have, have a bit more freedom can be terrifying because they're actually saying, give me the 25 slides or, you know, give me the workflow. Let me look at the Confluence page and I'll just do it by the numbers. So it's very much about personality. But I, 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 I have seen that work very well is where people are given latitude. And I don't think businesses are very good at that. They tend to either fall into the classic agency mold of like, oh, hi, Alona. Um, oh, you're starting today. Here's your laptop. All the best. <laughs> or... It's six weeks of onboarding, a cap, a water bottle, uh, you know, or please post this on LinkedIn. It's one or the other. And I think, you know, somewhere in the middle is about right. It's that point at which you take the training wheels off and say, go and actually do something that only you could do rather than this sort of quite homogenous thing. So I think for me, that's been a winner. I've kept some talented people longer than I thought I would. Not because of the company, but because of the environment in which we're working, where you're, where you're thinking, stay. Because, you know, how can they when they're not getting any of that interaction and progression that you get from in the same physical space? Yeah, from, you raised some interesting like, reflections for me because I think for people to be able to put their own mark on something it would get more they're they're more engaged and they've got more buy-in with what they're doing if they've got their own flavor to it you know it's just Uh, like if you yes yeah (laughs) so that's kind of what it is I think yeah and 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 it's equally if you think about we I'm sure both of us have sat on the other side of the table being presented to whether that be in a kind of commercial environment or an internal environment whatever it is we've all sat and been powerpointed at some point Right. And the, the more authentic and connected that person is to what it is they're presenting to you, the more connected you are to them. It's as simple as that. The, the topic can be dry, but if they are, if they're clearly invested in it and they've built it, rather than saying, oh, this is slide three, uh, slide three, oh yeah, leverage competitive advantage, you know, that, that, and that's not just about not, not boring people. That's also about the presenter feeling like they're doing a job that only they could do. And that drives the retention piece, I think. That, so that I know because I've seen it happen. So by, by giving people latitude, you keep them. By giving people latitude in a controlled way, you also have more effective meetings. And by having more effective meetings commercial or otherwise, you get to better actions. So I just think a lot of companies lack the framework and or courage to do it. So they're either hugely formulaic, go and do this, or they are uh, just, you know, do your best. Yeah, chaos. And also, if it's like 
do it yourself all the time. That just takes time. Everyone doing their own version, like you almost need an 80%, right? So you've got a almost like a template that people can use, but then they make it into their own style or presentation or whatever. And also it just gives people, as you said, the chance to radiate their authenticity. And authenticity is one of those words around leadership that kind of comes up. And it's interesting to kind of unpick what that actually means and how to be authentic because it's a word I'm pretty sure it's in every leadership book I've ever read or at least the the last 10 years right but I'm sure before before like in the 50s it was probably like command and control be a complete dictator but now it's all about being authentic but it's it's a it's different I think I, I think it's difficult for people to understand what that means I think it comes back to the point about what people what not people but what a certain what the most important section of of people at work i.e that kind of 23 up to 30 something that that's the future of your business there Mm -hmm. if you're in a corporate environment anyway right and most other businesses i would imagine that's your future there and for those people that they they this idea of authenticity they 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 are in a world where there isn't there's not so much of a traditional society. They probably don't know their neighbours. Maybe they they are religious in an organised way, or maybe they're probably they're not. Right? And so what you, what you have is this kind of quite dispersed uh, world outside, and the expectations of work are so much higher. So some of the conversations I've had have been... I mean, on a human level, completely understandable. But then when you, you come away and you finish that conversation and you reflect on it and you think, wow, like to, to expect that from a company it is, is, that's such a, that's, it's okay, it's fine. But that's, it's trying to be church and state and, and, and it's like, it's not, so it's not just salary anymore, you know, and, and, that, and that, that's very challenging. So that idea of being authentic yeah, okay, fine. As a leader, you've got to be authentic. What does that mean? Does it mean that occasionally I might swear? Or what, what does that mean exactly? Plus, I've got to pick my way through that, that environment where people have a much, they're putting the business on a much higher pedestal. You must achieve these things. You must be morally, ethically. All these things must be right. You must be all about equality. You can't put a foot wrong here. You must be inclusive. That that is completely legitimate and understandable. But then to say to leaders, and can you be an authentic within this environment, please? It's kind of like that that scene out of Kung Fu Panda where they go into the training hall and it's all like swinging fire sticks and like it's incredibly difficult to achieve it because you're doing it, you're being authentic within an incredibly complex environment. And, and and for me, I, I mean, I've watched incredibly charismatic leaders. Benioff being a great example. I mean, I saw him in the flesh a few times. Very charismatic, very engaging. But there's the whiff of politician and great orator about them. And you're like, is that authentic? I don't know. But for for people that are sort of beyond, like beneath the rarefied air of the C-suite of a billion dollar business, that's it's not so easy. It's hard to, to be an authentic leader and navigate all of this. So I think, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's flatter leadership. I think that's what I've learned is it's, it's less hierarchical. You must be flatter because that kind of gets you, you're not on such a high wire if you're flatter in your style. If you're to your, what you said about command and control and you're super hierarchical, then that's a high wire and, and you can come off it. Whereas if, you've, if you flatten both your organisation and your style, then it's it's much easier because you can constantly sort of you can check in and you can compliment where you might be weak on a particular topic by the people that are around you. I mean that's always been my trick. I've never I've always I think one of my sort of most developed skills is finding people that can help me to look good. <laughs> and I've had yeah. some amazing like some amazing ones over the years where I've just been like, oh thank God you're there. You know, so yeah, I, th- I think authenticity is easy said, harder to do. <laughs> I agree with you. Do you want to know where you are on your leadership development journey? Well, here at the Still Loading Podcast, we have combined the best insights and expertise from our guests and the best practices and tips and tools that we use with our clients today and created a free resource for you, the Wheel of Digital Leadership Life, so that you can assess where you are today and where you need to get to in order to be a great leader for the digital age. The link is in the description box below where you can get your hands on it. And also, please do like and subscribe and share this podcast with people that you think would really benefit from it. It helps us to find more people and to help more people become leaders fit for the digital age. Thanks. I suppose it would be great to know and understand like a leader that inspired you along your own (laughs) development through the thousands of years that you've been involved in, in <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean there's there's ones that I've sort of admired from afar and I, I often talk about Mark Benioff because I just think I just think to, the way he baked in and it's a software reference but the way he baked, he came out of Oracle he saw everything that was maybe weak about Oracle because it's it was set up as a software company in a different era and he saw, first of all, from a quite academic perspective, he saw that software as a service might be a thing, right? So, I mean, that's quite a thing. But but on the sort of, on the softer side, he baked in uh, a charitable organisation into the business straight away. He gave them founder shares. He sold any, he sold his software for nothing to any non-profit. That remains the case today. He's got a multi-million dollar business there. He put in... Uh, community work for all of his people from the beginning there was no sort of hasty not greenwashing but you know what i mean trying to look good csr Mm. work for oh shit shit we better look like we care right he he put that in right from the from the outset combined with that the guy is a consumer very commercially minded consumer communicator sales guy machine i mean there's just been a lot of layoffs which are very unfortunate like eight thousand people have gone from Salesforce as they try and, you know, uh, control margin. But the, so definitely admire him because I think to do that in a, at a business at, at that scale is impressive. My own managers, I think, well, I had one very, very early, um, uh, a, a woman called Julie Bullen, who was like, she was my first manager that kind of championed me. I mean, I'm talking like in the dark ages, um, you know, there were no internets back then. 
internet back then. I was on an I was on a AS four hundred. Yeah. Anyway, but the um, she was great because she she saw the potential in me and selflessly backed me. So that was the first mm-hmm. time someone looked after me, um, and she kind of set the mold for for the types of leaders that I could work for because I think I'm quite I can be quite mercurial and challenging at times so I've had a lot of really human bosses and some not so much but 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 I've had some you know uh, some guys some people who have been very kind I mean I know it's not really you're looking for sometimes Benioff is to sort of look from afar and say what a great businessman and strategist but actually, the, the the bosses that I've worked with the best are the ones that push me when I need pushing, but are kind because life and work can be hard, and it's the ones that that form a genuine connection with you and and say, do you know what? I'm going to promote you above myself. And I've learned from them that in my leadership style to be, or is it? Who, I can't remember who said it to me. It was a few jobs ago, but someone said to me, "What you should be doing is trying to train at least two people in your org to take your job." If you're doing that, if you've got two people in your org that you think, "Okay, two years, I need them to train my job," that's self-serving in a large organisation because you can take the next one and have them slot in. But also, it just means that you're pouring everything you know into two people, and that. You're not being guarded or political or Machiavellian. You're just you're just giving all of it, and I've I've absolutely observed that. So I I've seen a lot of very kind, patient, tolerant, and then recently I've seen some some leaders, particularly in Amasis, a couple of people there who have been genuinely obsessed with getting better and ask for feedback without gritting their teeth. <laughs> So, so give they take the feedback and say thanks very much, and you see them doing it. The, the guy I worked with for a few years, called Grant Coleman, who who now has gone on to some somewhere else, who I still know very well. Uh, I, I remember with him giving him feedback. Sort of, right, we were peers at the time, and I gave him feedback rather nervously about something, and watched him just on board it, and just make it so. So yeah, uh, I think it's the human side of it. Um, that, that really appeals to me. Not so. I, I I understand the need for someone that can create unique value, but uh, i.e. A, a Jobs or a Benioff, guys like that. But often they're not particularly great humans. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, no. It was it was a funny thing I recently realised. There's a lot of books about CEOs and so forth. You're actually, you know, celebrating people who you wouldn't actually want to work with or no. you know like if they were on your team they would be an absolute nightmare so it's it's so funny that all these like bestsellers of of the behaviors that we're all supposed to be trying to get towards you know but equally it wouldn't necessarily be a great read to read about read about like Donna who was just a great manager who's just super kind and just like always <laughs> helping you with whatever you wanted so it's just it's a funny one I think Leadership, there's the big concept with the capital L from a, you know, theoretical standpoint. And then there's the practical realities of just having someone who cares. 
It, it, it's for me. It's that it, you, you get two types of leaders. There's the humans that are just you know people who are naturally a leader and would be whether it be in a factory, on a football pitch, um, on a netball pitch, wherever it would be, they would naturally gravitate to the top, right? And then there are the ones who are, and that, that's what I would call a human leader. And she mm-hmm. comes from anywhere and will always end up there because people just naturally want them there. <laughs> and then you've got the visionaries who you absolutely need in a business because if you don't have someone constantly creating new value, particularly today when there's it's just innovation everywhere, then you're kind of screwed because you, you don't have a business to work for. So you need those two qualities. I, don't, I think it's unreasonable to ask for them to exist in one person. Yeah, I agree. Because I was think, look, I was reading a brilliant article recently because I'm obviously involved with lots of scale ups, and they spoke about how at a certain point, and I keep seeing this on repeat actually at the moment, that yeah. you need the visionary to get you to a certain point, and then you need almost like the caretaker CEO who can help stabilize and professionalize the organization. You needed someone to get it up and running. That kind of it's not been done before. But then you need someone who's, and it was in relation to the Elon Musk situation, because obviously he's a visionary, but he's gone into an organization like Twitter that already exists and already has been established. So it's causing mayhem, his leadership style, and has done because he's a visionary. So he, if he joined Twitter at the beginning, he would have been able to make a huge impact, no doubt. But it's just at this point, it's disruptive because it's an established business. Yeah, I, mean, it, I, I am. I am fascinated by businesses that are at that inflection point. I mean, and I've been lucky enough to work for three. I mean, Amas is being one of them. Although it was very mature in its years when I got there, it was at one of those inflection points. You know, it's trying to make that really big step up to scale, and, and that's a fascinating area because, like you say, you're going from a business that has a heart and a soul and something about it that makes the customers want to work with them. And then you've mm-hmm. got to turn that heart and a soul into a functioning machine. And that that transition is very challenging because you're trying to kindle that culture or and keep that visionary there, but also at the same time bring in some grown-ups who, who could say, hey, like you can't actually ask people to work at the weekends, you know. If they'd like to, then that's great. But, but yeah. and, and, that, and that kind of, I love that moment of, of inflection where you've got a business that's got something special and is coming and asking, how do we go to market? You know, like how, literally, how do we go to market? Because we've got something, we're selling it to three customers, we'd like to have 300. How do we take this and bifurcate and duplicate and and keep it special how do we set up a bean tin machine that still keeps what we've got and that that's an incredibly edifying business challenge i mean you're you're in it all the time right so i think it's that i totally get why businesses at that stage of their life cycle are i think they're addictive actually that 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 type yeah. It's just, I think it's because you can really see the impact of a leader yeah. on that business. You you replace, you change it and the whole thing changes, the whole tone, the whole atmosphere. And like you're saying, it's like, how do you keep that secret source, but equally professionalized? And it's, it's a very interesting conundrum. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. And, and you can really get your hat. I think the thing that, that I mean, I, it's a different challenge. Right? I mean, a artist now within SAP is a very different challenge. Um, same, same business, a lot of the same people, but it, there are challenges. It took me about six months to really realize what the, like, what am I now doing? So from a business where you're able to get your hands on the levers, which I think was what we're both talking about. So, you know, and, and you need a certain personality to want to do that because if you, if you are nervous about, well, what does this do? And, and as you all sort of plummet down the hillside and you think like, oh no, not that one. Right. <laughs> you, you need to have the stomach for that. So companies and organizations self-select in a way, because if you're in that, I'm not a fan of people that, I like the fact you call it scale up because I, I like, I, I'm not a fan of people saying startup because I, I've pitched into a lot of companies that say, well, we've got a startup culture. And you're like, well, you're five years old. Well, what do you mean by that? It means you're dysfunctional and you don't have any processes. That's what that means. We don't want to do the meaty minutes because that's boring. <laughs> yeah, so you've got an autocratic despot that runs it. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that and and, and it, but it, for a minute there in the employment market, startup culture was like a selling point, wasn't it? It was like, a, yeah, oh, startup culture. Oh, I'll have some of that. And then and then suddenly you you start getting the stories out about. Um, the the about tinder and what that startup culture was like <laughs> and you're like oh man, maybe i don't want the startup culture anymore and and now that's begun to sort of it's begun to shift away from startup culture which basically means work very hard to your point with no tools no processes no guide rails and like no time off. and all for the all for the whim and whimsy of a particular person like that's what can happen because ultimately if the founder is still the ceo at a certain point they've been able to have their own little like a kingdom for or queendom for as long as they want um and so it depends on the industry as well and it depends on them and if they had anybody as you said senior challenging them and it's interesting as well when you start to see these the, the patterns in these companies when they start doing their senior hires. Like, just keep an eye out to see how long those senior hires stay, because <laughs> then you'll see if they're willing to work with people. Because if there's suddenly like an exit, like, oh, I don't think it's working well. I don't think they're relinquishing control. I think there's a, there's a gentleman that we have in common who who uses a piece of use a piece of research. I forget. Um, exactly where it comes from but it's data based so it's from 20 plus a bit of data <laughs> and what it um, and it looks at the primary causes for business failure within year one to five mm-hmm. so it, it goes in and tries to quantify that and it does a pretty good job of quantifying that so and i i believe i might be wrong um but I don't think I am because it was the conversation I only had a couple of days ago. And although I am quite ancient, I think I can reach back that far. The main reason for failure is an autocratic leader. Mm-hmm. So now you can be a visionary leader to come back to our previous topic, but where people like Jobs, possibly Benioff, don't know enough about the gentleman, were smart is that they were smart enough to know I'm good at this. I can be a tyrant. I need three people around me that will call me out on my stuff and will stand up to me and who I will allow to do so, right? So, and that way you you have a buffer between you and the real world. 
right? And you're still allowed to be that uncompromising visionary that doesn't care, but you've got people around you that say, hey, Steve, we can't do that, right? But if you've got an autocratic leader who won't even extend to that, then you've got a problem. And so yes. it's, it's, a, it's a nuggety problem. And I think the second one was something like a weak CFO, like that. So, so you've autocratic leader, weak CFO. Those are the two, the two things. But it's, it's interesting because I've seen a business that has, that, that I've been in businesses that have acquired, they lose their visionary and they lose their secret sauce yeah. because they stop yeah. innovating. It's a funny one. Yeah. So it, it, it is. I do think that that leadership thing comes down to you, you're a human leader. You're, you're an example of like who wants to read the book about Donna, who was just the most amazing man manager ever. Right. Yeah. Like, really? Oh, whatever. But, just but, she, was, she remembered my birthday. She always brought in cake. Like she was just amazing. She pushed you. She coached you. It's great. Or he. Um, but yeah, yeah no, but I totally. It, it is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. With so we've talked a little bit about you know your experience, um, kind of your on your own leadership development journey where you joined the company was and it was a challenge for you. And I, I, we've talked a little bit here around trends as well in the in the you know that we both have experienced within that. I suppose from your experience and knowing a bit about like the trends that are happening, what would your three top tips for leaders be um, thinking about leadership for the digital age? I, I think I've already touched on them as, as we've been chatting. I think that for me, one hundred percent is about having at least two people in your business that you feel within two years can do your job. I think it's very, very difficult to run a team where there's a huge gap between competencies. It's very difficult. So, you know, that, and, and again, scale up startup, there's a lot of that where we're like, okay, we're going to cut our cloth according to our funding. And right. so that would be my biggest one is two people, two years. So mm-hmm. make sure two people, two years that can do it. The other one is you, you must, finding your authentic voice is, is going to be the same thing as talking to those two people and saying, how authentic do you think I ought to be? And I was, I was told something really early in my career, which was try not to have too big a gap between Ben outside of work and Ben inside. And I used to, I, one of my good friends growing up was a, was a stockbroker who used to, who was completely the opposite of that rule and used to slick his hair back, put his, put his tagur on, grrr, I'm a tiger, and, and off he'd go to work and be unrecognisable physically, spiritually, emotionally, <laughs> um, in order to survive the job he did. So I think there's that, that the two people over two years is huge, the, the authenticity is part of those two people, but also that idea of if you've got kids, they're a great way of finding out. If you don't, then it's your friends and family and saying, what is it? What is it about me that you like, dislike, think more of, less of, and being less worried about that? I think less worried about what should I bring to work? What should I not bring to work? You know, Because I think you're going to be managing people for whom work is so much more than it ever was for us. We're going to want it to be everything from sort of parent to church to healthcare to pastoral care. And it's much more than that. So if you come, 
looking at it like you're a autocratic boss, it's not really going to work. The other one is I think you do need, but my last one, I think that's three-ish. Yeah. My last one would be you, you've got to have a little bit of, I think you need some some shtick. So you need either vision or ways of working in, in which people can see how you're different. So I'll give an example. Um, I use, I've always used, so I've, 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 I've run teams up to about, 90 people-ish, that's the biggest it's got. And I, and within that, I've probably had five direct reports. And with those direct reports, I will say to them, you, there's three ways you can talk to me. You can, when we have our one-to-ones, you can just say, okay, I just want to get on the couch, in which case I just want to go bleh and complain and moan. And, <laughs> and I don't want any response. I just want you to say, oh, Elena, that is rough. That's number one. You can ask, you can say, I'm going to do that, but I'm asking for feedback and advice. So this is this happened. How do I deal with her? Can you, you know, what, what would you do? Type stuff. Or you can ask for direct intervention. So you can say, I'm out of my depth. I've made a mistake. I need you to send an email or I need you to leverage this relationship and protect me, please. Right? And, and so that, that, that's an example of the sort of leaders, leadership shtick, that's not easy to say, that I've used. I've always, I've always used that with team members. So something that says, this is the type of person I am. These are the expectations that I have. You know, and This is how you need to talk to me. Because if you don't talk to me like this, you're not going to get the best out of me. And, and you know, I'm not super structured, but I'm semi-structured. And once, and once people get that and they realise that you are a, a unique human being, but you're making an effort to integrate with them, then, then I think it can work. And, and I, you know, I've been lucky enough to have like, fairly low churn in my teams. I haven't had touch wood. I haven't had any disasters management wise or leadership wise so so far there's still time there's still time (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us today i really appreciate the conversation it's been really insightful and interesting and whimsical at best um and i'm glad that you have um you know you've you've made some great um strides in your career no doubt you'll continue to do so so thank you so much for joining us today thanks alana it's been a pleasure Thank you for listening to this episode of the Still Loading podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the leadership development programs we can offer you, you need to contact Slate Digital. We cater for everyone who needs to have leadership development in their rapidly scaling organizations. We specialize in remote and hybrid leadership, and we can't wait to hear from you. If you've liked the podcast and found it useful, please do share it with your friends, your colleagues, anyone you think who might benefit from being a better leader in the digital age. Bye for now.